a song that, that, uh, whose words I knew, but hearing it sung in different languages was just a, uh, it was a reminder to me, and it hit me really heavy in that moment, of God's working around the globe in, in ways, it, it's so easy, right? It's so easy to just get caught up in what God is doing in my life and my world and our church and think that that's it. And it was this incredible reminder that God has, is, is working around the globe. I'm, I'm often reminded by that on Sundays like this when, forgive me, well, we sing singer songs. I can't talk today. This is going to be a long morning. Where we sing older songs in an older style uh, that God has not, it, He is not only working around the globe, but He has been working for generation after generation after generation. And that's why we're here. Uh, we, we could talk about the faithfulness of generations that came before us, and that would be worthy, uh, a worthy conversation. But really what, what we're talking about is, is the faithfulness of our God generation after generation after generation and when you're tempted to despair about what future generations might look like just be reminded that every generation probably at the end of its time has looked at a world that's different than it knew when it was younger and been tempted to despair and yet here we sit and our confidence should not be in people or generations, nor our despair by cultures. But our confidence should be in the faithfulness of a God who is never unfaithful, who will build his church, who is at work calling sinners to become saints, and who is never caught off guard or surprised, who's never weary or slumbers, we, we serve a great God. On a lighter note, I would second what you said. Like, I was watching Caleb go and play this morning, who thought he was going to be playing and wasn't scheduled to play, and he showed up and played songs he didn't know probably. I don't know if you prepared for this morning or not, man, but he didn't have any music up here. And I'm looking at this going, I've never been that good at anything in my life. And I would say that to all of you. I've, I've never been that good at anything in my life. So thank you for uh, for serving us this morning, all of you. We're, we're grateful. Let's turn our attention now to, uh, to God's Word. We're going to have a weird sermon today, but hopefully one we find uh, encouraging, and then we'll pray. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. I'm in, John, I'm in Matthew 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord, that you do reign, that, that you uh, sent your Son who reigns 
and subject to your authority. Who is Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of the Lord's day and Lord of every day in every generation at every time. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, we want to continue to pray for us as a church as we transition giving systems. Lord, may you help us to work the details of that out. And, and Lord, we pray more specifically than just, just that as we um, are, are fairly behind on giving. We pray that you would provide. And, and not only for us as a church, but, but individually. Um, costs are, are rising, and many of us are finding that, that things are more difficult in this time. And, and so we trust you to provide, but we ask for your provision as a church. We pray that not only for us, Lord, but for New Beginnings Chapel this morning as well. Father, as we pray for us and them, we pray that there would be faithfulness to the gospel, uh, faithfulness to, uh, to extraordinary things uh, in terms of salvation and not just in terms of provision. Because the most extraordinary thing is not when, uh, when you heal the sick, but when you, when you take a dead sinner and you give them life. You give them a new heart and a new spirit. When, when you bring us to life in your Son and welcome uh, uh, us into your kingdom as your children, that is above all the greatest miracle. May, may we never look so much to the physical that we neglect the miraculous of the spiritual and what you're doing around us. Would you help us to be faithful to ordinary means of grace, to the ordinary means of reading your word and preaching your word and fellowship and prayer and baptism and communion. And may, uh, may we be content and overjoyed at the power that you display through ordinary things. Father, as we turn to your word, we confess we need your help in understanding it. And, and I pray that today would be encouraging to us, maybe convicting to some, uh, maybe convicting to some on both sides of this issue that we will look at today. But we need your help. Lord, it's not us alone who need your help, but we want to pray for your help for Sandy and Sue Nafziger as they continue the ministry that we support them in, Lord, as they're, uh, we just thank you for their praises for this new missions agency, Shiloh, and, and for the conference that they had recently, Father, we, um, we thank you for the encouragement that it was to them. We pray that you would give them faithfulness to share the gospel. We pray that there would be uh, airmen and women who, who do not know you uh, today, who do tomorrow because of the work that you're doing through them. And we pray for uh, those people in the Air Force who they work with who are believers. Give them strength, give them resilience, give them uh, re uh, resolve to stand for you, uh, whether it's popular or not. And that that would be a testimony to you, Lord. Call uh, these men and women in the Air Force to you through, uh, through those who believe, through Sandy and Sue, through the work of many others that we might see them know you and, and love you and be saved. Father, we, uh, as we turn our attention to your word once again, we ask for your help, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This going to be a little bit of an unusual message today. We're coming to uh, chapter 12, and I've tried to alert you as to when there are changes kind of in the thrust of the text of Matthew. Uh, chapter 12 of Matthew really begins with this, um, this growing opposition to Jesus. And the single most uh, opposed issue that arises 
Not only in Matthew, but in much of the Gospels, probably because it was the issue for which Jesus upset people the most, was that of the Sabbath. And so I want to take a moment today and, and understand what the Sabbath is. I think we live in a region where there is a lot of confusion about what the Sabbath is and, and is not. In fact, um, you know, I live in College Place, and so uh, I see bumper stickers as I'm driving home that say Saturday is still the Sabbath and, and things like that. And while that's true, um, may, maybe it has some different implications than, than we understand. We live in a strongly Sabbatarian area. And so as we approach this section of the book of Matthew, I think it would serve us in our community to have an understanding of the Sabbath. To be clear, I'm not going to pull any punches, I, I disagree with Adventist and Seventh-day Baptist's understanding of the Sabbath. However, this is not going to be a, a bashing of Sabbatarians. Um, that's not what we're about to embark on today. In fact, while I believe that they have some things to learn from us, I think in many ways we may have some things to learn from them as well. But I, I think in, this, in, in the New Covenant day and age that, that we live in, um, an, an understanding, a biblical understanding of the Sabbath is rare. And so I would like to lay that foundation for us as we head into Matthew chapter 12. New covenant Sabbath keeping is not new, by the way. Um, uh, Adventism is classified as a new religious movement. Um, it, it's, it's not a old tradition, but, but Sabbath keeping somewhat is. In fact, much of the Puritans uh, and early Baptists were Sabbatarians, those who observed the Sabbath. Now, many of them transferred the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday and believed that Sunday was the new Sabbath. And so Sunday was now the day, often called, as we'll see, the Lord's Day. Uh, it was kind of this new Sabbath day that was set aside in, in many ways for Worship And so for hundreds of years, this, this Sabbatarian tradition has, has been around. But we're going to start out today by looking at the origins of the Sabbath in Scripture in order to stand, understand the background of the Sabbath and then how we might relate to the Sabbath. And then we're going to close with some applications. And so if you find this kind of thing interesting, good for you. We're going to start there. You'll be interested. If you kind of find this thing kind of boring, that's okay. Hang in there because I think towards the end of today's message, we're going to find some pretty wonderful applications for us today. Some, some maybe even rest-giving applications for us today. And I, I hear from a lot of people today how tired they are. And so it might be worth paying attention to. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Uh, Genesis, chapter 2. And we're going to see the start or the foundation of the Sabbath. So in Genesis, chapter 1, we see six days over which God creates everything. The, the earth, at some point, had already been created by him. And we see these six days of creation, where he creates plants and animals and light and dark and 
uh, and trees and plants and, and, uh, and people and all these things. And then we come to chapter 2, and it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, uh, the first thing I would note about this passage, and this is kind of just a side note here, but it's important, is that God's rest from his work does not imply exhaustion. What we see here is that God is not saying he worked for six days and now he's tired. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. I, I think maybe is a, it's a verse most of us have probably heard, but I think it might be even that Isaiah is indicating this for us in connection to Genesis. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And so Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 28, gives us the very context of God as creator. And as creator, the rest of the verse says, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This does not imply that God was weary or tired from the work that he had done. It simply implies that he had ceased. There was no more work to do. And in fact, he won't go back to work until another chapter later when we give him a reason to sacrifice and to make clothing and to, uh, to go about a different work. This day where he ceased is called holy. It's the first occurrence of the word holy in the Bible. And it, and it just means set apart. I think the idea of holy is, is more vertical than horizontal. When we say set apart, we think set next to. This is probably more vertical, more elevated, more, more lifted above other days. This day was elevated above the rest. And, and this day is elevated above the rest for three reasons. Uh, three things we're told here in the text. One, creation was completed. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Creation was done. There was no more work to do at that point. Second, we see that it was elevated because God rested from his work, a fact that is repeated twice in the next two verses. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And so not only was creation completed, but God ceased to work. And thirdly, because God blessed it. God made it holy and blessed it. He elevated it above the rest of the days. Now, there's something really important to be seen here, uh, and, and we're going to see why this is the case later, but note that there is no use here of either the word Sabbath nor a command to obey the Sabbath. No Sabbath command is given here. That doesn't come for a long, long time later. 
In fact, it doesn't come till after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those who came before them. God makes a covenant promise to Abraham, gives him even a sign of the covenant, but it's not till long after Abraham that a Sabbath rest is commanded. And it comes with the giving of manna in the wilderness in Exodus. So turn with me to the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. And here's where we see the first giving of the command. And notice the language of the command when we read it here. Because it's not an old command. It does not appear to be an old command from this text. It appears to be a new commandment that they had not understood before. But Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 and 23 say this. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Now let's stop there and just kind of put things in context. Excuse me. We've moved on from creation. We've moved far into the Genesis account where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you and your family into a nation. We've moved far past Abraham, not only his generations, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, plus 400 years. And now we're at the Exodus and God calls his people out of Egypt. Did you know, by the way, that Christianity is not the only faith or Judaism, as we might combine those together, that has a story of the Exodus, that just about every civilization over there has an ancient story of, of, uh, uh, from about the same time of people leaving the nation of Egypt under plague. Um, pretty, pretty fascinating. Uh, but lots of historical evidence for the Exodus. But God calls his people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And now they're going to be moving into this promised land that he had promised to Abraham. And so uh, they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, there's not food, there's not water, there's lots and lots of them. Certainly not enough food in the land there to live off of. And God provides for them. He provides for them quail, he provides for them manna. Uh, this manna, we don't really know what it is, uh, a bread-like, sweet, snowflakey substance of some kind or another. We're not sure what it is. But they were commanded to gather it. And on the sixth day, they were commanded to gather twice as much as they needed. Now, on the rest of the days, if they kept more than they needed, it would rot and worms would show up in it. But on the sixth day, they were commanded to take extra. So Friday, they were to gather two days worth of manna. One for Friday, one for Saturday. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Now for the first time, God is giving the nation of Israel the command for Sabbath. Now, this command, it, it is to be a day of solemn what? Rest. This is significant because there is not a single verse in Scripture that I can come up with that connects worship to Sabbath. 
It was never intended to be a day of worship. I mean, every day is intended to be a day of worship. And I think the reason it ended up being a day of worship, as God gives them commands of gathering and and how the priests can violate that, it's not that God doesn't give instructions that way, but, but God's intent was that we work for six days and rest for one. And so all of those elements of corporate worship and rest keeping and recreation, they were all built into this day. But it was to be a day of rest. This is so important. I was spending some time with somebody recently who, um, we were talking, I said I played a round of golf and walked eight miles. He goes, how long does it take you to play a round of golf? It's like four hours worth of walking. I said, yeah, it takes about four hours. He says, I don't understand how people have that much time to to recreate. I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, you need a better theology of rest. Because the reality is when we think we don't need rest, fundamentally we're saying, I'm the one who neither sleeps nor slumbers. I'm the one who doesn't grow weary. Watch me, God. And he says, no. You do grow weak. You do grow weary. You do need sleep. Oh, and by the way, while you're comatose every night, I'm still in control. Because I never sleep nor slumber. It's Im- rest is important. It's a rhythm for which God made us for. And we're going to see why it's so important here this morning. But it was a day of rest. And this appears to be the first command of the Sabbath. They're not familiar with this command at this point. And we're going to consider more in a moment about rest. It it fully becomes commanded in Exodus chapter 20. You can turn there. Excuse me. Exodus chapter 20. This is uh, commonly called the Ten Commandments. And so here, God is giving commandments to the nation of Israel. And he starts out with commandments that relate to him. How people are to relate to him. And then he gives commandments of how people are to relate to one another. He starts with the vertical and ends with the horizontal. And right in the middle, he gives us a command. It's the fourth command. To remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days, verse 9 of Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He set it apart. And so you're not to do any work on this day. Now here's a question. Why? Why did he give this command? What is the purpose of this day of rest? Well, let me tell you what I think is going on here. Obviously, we've seen that God in six days made everything. And he made it perfect. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. And he made Adam and Eve to do work. Now, this was work where there was not any toil, where there was not any sweat, where there was not any pain, and therefore, in the garden, there was no disruption of rest. It was constant rest. In fact, I don't know how true this is, but it's an interesting thought, so don't take this as, like, absolutely certain. 
But, but I, I did read one time somebody who was talking about how when Jesus is with the disciples and they're going back and forth, I think it's from Bethany to Jerusalem, and he curses the fig tree and it withers, may, may be a picture of how Adam was capable of tending the garden. What if Adam was able to tend the garden by the power of his word, not certainly in the same way that God's word is powerful? I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Whatever was true in the garden, rest was not interrupted. Toil and struggle and difficulty and exhaustion and pain in work The the laboring of work came in as part of the curse. After we sinned, that's part of the consequences in in this world that now experiences decay, that experiences chaos in a way that it never did before. And so there's there's this sense in which now we're removed from rest and our sin removed us from the garden. The reason there's no command for a Sabbath rest in Genesis 2 is because there isn't a need for one. There, there's no state of decay there. Thank you. There's no, uh, there's no chaos. There's no pain. There's no trouble. There's no labor. But then, God commands this day of rest. And I think the reason he commands a day of rest is for two reasons. And they're very, very closely connected together. One is to be a weekly reminder of what was lost. Our our day of rest, the Sabbath, is to be a reminder of what was lost. It is a day to remember God as creator. This is why we call recreation, recreation. Because in six days, God created And we enjoy his creation. We recreate, or rather recreate. And this sixth day of rest was was to be a day where, where they were reminded of God as creator and as rest giver and of the paradise that was lost. Why why do we chase? recreation so hard why is it that i can't find a a person willing or only hesitantly willing to lead an adult bible fellowship when the weather's nice could it be that in our recreation we've forgotten That what we're enjoying is a taste of paradise lost and paradise gained and instead substituted that rest that should remind us of God as creator as our own God? I think it's possible. I don't think it's always true. But I, I think it's possible. So this first off, this day of rest, was a day to remember God as creator and as rest giver and of us as sinners who have removed ourselves from that rest but then we also see that it's given in the ten commandments and i think it's put in the middle of uh, the ten commandments for a reason i think it's there to remind us 
that we are lawbreakers and that God is lawgiver. Exodus chapter 31. If you fast forward to there, right at the end of the book of, or towards the end, not directly at the end of the book of of Exodus, but in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 18, we see a little bit of, of why this was, was given in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 31, 12 through 18 says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign. It's a sign. That's what Sabbath is. It was a sign. It was a sign given between God and his people. Now, signs do something, right? What do they do? They point us to something. They indicate something. And I think God's signs aren't aren't accidental. I don't think they're, uh, they're without meaning. Why is baptism and communion the signs of the new covenant? Because they're symbolic of cleansing, of burial and resurrection, of participating in the life and death of Christ? Why is the sign of, uh, of circumcision given in the Abrahamic covenant and then sacrifice? I think it's given as a, uh, because there's probably nowhere, there's a song out, uh, it, it's a fairly new song, at least it's a new song to me, um, and uh, I'm trying to, th- I don't remember the name of the song, but um, the, the chorus goes something along the lines of, my heart needed a surgeon, my soul found a friend. What a brilliant line. Why circumcision? Because something needs cut out of us, and there's maybe nowhere in our lives that that's more evident than in human sexuality. And sacrifice is the reminder that something has to die to pay for our sin. Why the sign of Sabbath? To remember what was lost and what was gained. To remember God as creator and as lawgiver. Uh, This Sabbath is to be a sign between me and you throughout your generations. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, who's the command for? Here it is. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Verse 18, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, the tablet of stone written with the finger of God. This sign was specifically a sign for the people of God. And in Acts 15, when the church in Jerusalem gathers the leaders, the apostles of the church in Jerusalem, to ask, address, and seek the Lord on the question of who, what, what, what laws must the Gentiles who believe obey? Sabbath-keeping is not one that they pass along. There are some things that, that, the, that Gentile believers are supposed to refrain from, but Sabbath-keeping isn't one of them. 
It was a preview to the nation of Israel of what was to come, of paradise lost and of paradise restored, and of God as law giver. How would the effects of this curse be overcome? How would the effects of, uh, of this loss of paradise be restored? By obedience. Particularly obedience to the law of faith. More specifically, the obedience of Christ. Because we're all lawbreakers. So he came to keep it perfectly for us. And then he died. As a lawbreaker. Even though he wasn't a lawbreaker. So that lawbreakers like you and me can be treated as the lawkeeper that he was. And, and he's fulfilled it. So it's his obedience. But in a sense, it's in part our obedience as well. And when Jesus is asked, what must I do? What command must I obey to be saved? What's his answer? Especially if we look, this is a theme in the book of John. John is obsessed with this question. His answer is believe. And so in obedience to the command to believe, we believe. But all the obedience is really kept by Christ. What happens when, when we come to Christ? in the obedience of faith. We'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to try and pick up the speed here. And this, by the way, is just an overview of Sabbath in Scripture. Therefore, brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I'm in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, going on to verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so Jesus is better than Moses. He's better as a lawgiver. He's better as a law keeper. He's better as a people leader. He's better in every way. And then the, the author of Hebrews goes on to explain how through sin, the people lost their entrance to rest. This is a micro picture of a larger picture. That they were to come into the promised land. But their sin in the wilderness kept an entire generation from entering God's rest, out of slavery and into his promised land. And that was a picture of what happened in the garden. And it's a picture of what happens for you and me. How our sin removes us out of the land, the area of God's blessing, and moves us into unrestful places. It reminds us of the, the loss of rest. And so he says, don't harden your heart. Believe in Jesus. Tend to your salvation. Verse 16, for those for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and were led by Moses? And with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell into the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were to, unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest 
still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, now Joshua was the one who did take them into the promised land. And what that's telling us here is that the story of Joshua and the Israelites and their slavery and their wilderness wandering and Joshua's entrance into the kingdom, all of that happened to show us a bigger story. It's not the ultimate rest. The land of Israel isn't the ultimate rest. What is the ultimate rest? For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that there remains a Sabbath, but it's not related to a day. It's related to this. Either you can work at the law trying to be accepted by God or you can rest because Jesus did it for you and you can cease from your works. That's what every single one of us is faced with today. Either you're working to be good enough or Jesus already did it for you. Either you're trusting yourself or you're trusting him. And for those of us who have trusted him, every day is a Sabbath Every day is a day of rest. There's no more law keeping. There's no more temple service. God had that system obliterated. We can rest from all. Do you hear this? You can rest from your efforts to be good enough. Jesus did it for you. You can stop from your work of trying to make sure people see you in a certain light. Because what God sees when he looks at you is Jesus. You, you can stop projecting a fake image of yourself on social media, hoping people think better about you than you really are, because in Christ, you're already safe, loved accepted, welcomed. But if you're going to try and do that on your own, there's no rest. It's all labor. It's all exhaustion. Let us, verse 11, therefore strive 
to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give, an ac- give account. Nothing in our lives is hidden from him. It is all laid bare. Which means your labor in his sight is useless. But Jesus' labor on your behalf is not. Here's the big claim. Here's my point in all this. The Sabbath is the only command in the Ten Commandments that is not a moral command. That seems like a big claim. I'm going to have to prove it, right? Here it is. Uh, I'm going to give you three proofs. First, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. Every other one is repeated in the New Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament is the the command to keep Sabbath repeated. Secondly, Jesus, after breaking the people's understanding of the Sabbath, and I want to be very clear about that, Jesus did not break God's understanding of the Sabbath. As we read Matthew 12 and it says, the law does not permit you to pick uh, grain, that was Jewish writings, that was not scripture that, that made that claim. And so Jesus isn't breaking the law, he's breaking their understanding of the law. But he says, his response is, well, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he says, I'm God and I can do with the Sabbath as I please. He hasn't broken it, but that's still his command. That's still his claim. I'm God. I can do with that as I please. That's a statement, by the way, that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, imagine with me, if you will, Jesus doing this with any of the other Ten Commandments. Jesus, you're worshiping another God. Well, I'm Lord of the gods. I'm free to worship any God I want. Jesus, you're committing adultery. Well, I'm Lord of marriage. I can do whatever I want. Jesus, you're stealing or bearing false witness or, you know, the list goes on and on. Can you imagine Jesus making that claim with any of the other Ten Commandments? Of course not, because they are moral commandments. Even though he had not broken the law, he simply states that he's Lord of the Sabbath because it's not a moral command. And thirdly, it's the only one of the Ten Commands that at any point in time, God commands the people to stop. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. But what Isaiah 1 is getting at is your heart isn't in it. You're going through the motions. You still show up to temple. You still sacrifice. You still keep the Sabbaths. You still keep the festivals. But your heart isn't in it. So just quit. Now, again, can you imagine Jesus doing this with any of the other commandments? Well, you can murder as long as you didn't mean it. You can commit adultery as long as your heart isn't in it. God never suspends any of the other Ten Commandments. It's the only one for which he says, along with some other forms of worship, but those aren't in the Ten Commandments, It's the only one that God ever says, stop obeying that command because your heart isn't in it and it means nothing to me. 
don't start again until your heart is in it, until you've confessed and repented. It's, it's treated very differently throughout the scriptures. Now, because it isn't moral, we also see that it really doesn't matter that much in terms of obeying it or not. I'm assuming that most of us here aren't Sabbath keepers because here we are on a Sunday. All right? My point, my big point here is I, I wouldn't leave this place. A, a proper application of this sermon is not to leave here and go find your Sabbatarian friends and say, ha, huh, you're wrong. What if they want to worship on Saturday? Romans 14.5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, your Sabbatarian friends would hear that Colossians 2.16 Colossians 2, verse and say, well, they're not talking about the Saturday Sabbath. They're talking about the other fe feasts and festivals. The problem is those are listed in here too. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't pass judgment. If somebody wants to worship on Saturday, don't pass judgment. If somebody wants to worship on a Sunday, don't pass judgment. The list covers annual celebrations. It covers weekly ones. Paul neither commands them nor forbids them. If people want to worship on Saturdays, great. The only reason for which we would be inclined to see somebody stop is that hopefully over time, they might grow into the freedom they have in Christ. Because there is freedom in Christ. There is, however, another day to consider. And this is a day that is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is only mentioned in the New Testament. And it is Sunday. It is what we call now the Lord's Day. And we find in the New Testament, that it's the day that the church worshiped on. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I, I think this verse right here officially sets the length of time on the sermon clock. As long as I get you out of here before midnight, it was a short sermon. I can honestly say not a single sermon have I preached has anybody fallen out of a third-story window and died. Some people may think they have died, but nobody's actually died. They're gathered to break bread for communion. Paul talked with them. He preached, and he preached long, and they stayed. But it was a Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul was intending to take an offering for the support of churches in other areas. And Paul said, when you gather on the first day of the week, notice he assumes that the church will be gathered every first day of the week. That, that, that's the time to take the collection. Sundays begin to be called the Lord's Day. We see this in Revelation with John. Well, what does all this have to do with the Sabbath? This is where I want to get to application, okay? But let's talk about our application of this. The Sabbath was a reminder of God as creator 
and lawgiver, and us as lawbreakers who have been removed from his rest. The Lord's Day, Sunday, is a day of reminder that God is Redeemer. All that recreation we do where we avoid the church, at best it reminds us of what was lost and, and what can be regained. But it doesn't offer the regaining of any of that. That's what the Lord's Day is for. Sabbath is a day of rest. Sunday is a mini Easter. Every Sunday is to be a mini Resurrection Sunday. This will help us understand the teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, but there's there's something we got to do with this knowledge. I'm not just preaching this for fun or to pick a fight. So let me give you three applications. First, as you go to work five days a week or six, hopefully not more than that because God made us for rest, let the difficulty of your work be a reminder of paradise lost. Young people in this room, hear me out, okay? Listen carefully. If you're looking for rest in your work, you will never find it. If you're looking for your work to be that thing that just fills your soul with meaning and purpose, it will disappoint you. Don't get me wrong. It's okay to ask, what what do I want to do? And what might I enjoy? But work will still be difficult. And it won't provide you with meaning. Let your work be a, uh, let the difficulty of your work be a reminder of paradise lost. Second, I would encourage all of us to let Saturdays, or because that's just the way our culture is built, or any day of the week, whatever day of the week you have off, to be a day of rest. You should recreate. You should go enjoy God's creation. You should get outdoors if those things are restful to you. You should read a book. Eat something good. Take a walk. Get in your boat. Fish. Hunt. Hug a tree. I don't care. Enjoy. Enjoy God's creation and rest as a reminder of what was lost and what in Christ will be regained. And remember, you'll never, I hope, I hope you never hear the word recreation again. I hope you can't recreate without thinking of the Creator. And third, let Sunday be a day to remember God is Redeemer. You should go on vacation. You should get out of town. It can even be over a Sunday. But I would hope you would think again before looking outside on a Sunday morning and saying, well, the weather's nice. It's just one Sunday. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say that on just one Sunday. But he went to work so that we might rest. We need to remember God as creator and enjoy his creation. We need to remember God as lawgiver and us as lawbreakers. But we also need to remember that God is redeemer and Jesus is rest giver. And we'll never understand his power as rest giver until we understand our power as rest destroyers. We're good at it. 
We're really good at it. But the good news is, he's better. And that's the point of Hebrews. He's better. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son who is better. Better than the angels, better than the sacrificial system, better than the priests, better than Moses, better than Eden, better than the garden. Because we can understand him now not only as rest giver, but as redeemer. Father, would you help us to interact in your world according to your plan, according to your ways? Would, would we understand our need for our souls to rest and understand our need for our souls to be redeemed? And that in that redemption is the ultimate rest. We need physical rest, but we need spiritual rest. May every single person in this room not fail to enter that rest for having tried to do it on their own, but may we all enter into your rest trusting in Jesus and his ability to provide and to redeem and to overcome what we have broken. And we ask it for our good and for his glory. Amen.